Terra, Memory and Soil is a collaboration between Victoria Pham and Joel Spring that transforms West Space Gallery into an immersive garden by combining sound, biological sculpture, architecture and projection. The project interrogates how we remember our past landscapes, bringing vastly different insights into notions of the built environment, history and legacies of colonialism. You're listening to the Liquid Architecture Podcast. Today, archaeologist and composer Victoria Pham talks through the elements that make up terror, the practice of archaeoacoustics, and the mission of placing Indigenous knowledge at the centre of knowledge production, cultural exchange, and storytelling. Victoria Pham is an Australian installation artist, composer, archaeologist, and evolutionary biologist. She is a current PhD candidate for Biological Anthropology at the University of Cambridge, where she seeks to expand her interdisciplinary work into a broader exploration of acoustic perception as a basis into modes of bioacoustic material development and construction. Her artistic and musical work is driven by explorations into the sonic connections between secondhand memory, examining modes of decolonization, communal storytelling, interwining electronic sound with acoustic instrumentation, and ecological expression of construction. Terra, Memory and Soil is co-commissioned by Westspace Centre for Projection Art and Liquid Architecture. The exhibition will run till Sunday, October 16 at Westspace Collingwood Yards, Yala Birang. I'm Victoria Pham and I'm a sound installation artist, a composer and an acoustics researcher. So recently I've been working on an exhibition which is currently on show at West Space Gallery called Terra, Memory and Soil. And Terra, Memory and Soil was a collaboration between myself and uh, Wurundjeri man and architect Joel Spring. And the entire project was kind of about listening to the earth and thinking about the more traditional approaches to how narratives of history are formed and kind of challenging that and confronting that. And specifically to Earth, which is why the work is called Terra, we wanted to look at how soil itself could be a medium for listening, for nourishment, but also for decay of memories and of history. So Joel and I actually met in 2018. So I was involved in a separate project called Resounding with another collaborator, James Newen. And as part of that kind of initial public presentation of that work, we were building towards uh, a presentation through Bleed Festival, which was in 2020. 
and Bleed, which was something done between Campbelltown Arts Centre and Arts House Melbourne, had made this little mentorship group. And Joel was one of the people who was mentoring us, so one of the people that we had conversations with about how we could present uh, resounding and how we could research it or any ideas he had about sound presentation. And from then, that was how we initially met in Sydney. We'd started a couple of conversations about maybe working together and he'd always been interested in, in sound design as well as looking at maybe an archaeological perspective and I had never worked with an architect before. So we had these conversations for about two or three years and then the opportunity arose through West Space to present something and we decided to look at the earth because we'd been talking about it for a while and exploring it through different mediums and through plants, through structures, through history and through storytelling. I always wanted to delve into sound. And for me at the beginning, I had studied classical piano and I always thought the only option for me was to kind of expand from that and become a classical contemporary composer. But I was still interested in the sciences and in archaeology. So very fortunately, uh, the University of Sydney kind of let me do both. But even when I was doing both in my undergraduate degrees, I had this like tension all the time of which one should I be pulling towards more and which one I shouldn't be. And eventually I kind of like landed into the worlds of acoustic research as well as sound installation. I realized actually I could kind of mix these two. So I suppose I discovered a link that was already resonating with me <laughs> throughout all those times, but it's been relatively recent um, me realizing how not to make a pun, but how to be in tune with all these different sonic <laughs> experiences in my life. Within the archaeological practice, because I keep kind of going back to it, I decided in the end to specialise in a field called archaeoacoustics because it allowed me to combine some of the interests I had in sound design and sound technology with the archaeological research side of things. Archaeoacoustics is quite new as a discipline, so I'd say it came to the fore in the in the 90s and that came through this experimental French philosopher slash archaeologist slash anthropologist, he was many things, uh, Reskinov, who kind of theorised that if you go to these ancient cave art places in France that are quite famous now and in the north of Spain where there have been like little pigmentation marks, the red and the black dots are the most resonant places in these caves and therefore people of that period and the period he's talking about is the Neolithic um, were very aware of the sonic environment they were in. So it kind of opened the door within archaeology to look at maybe sensory acts or sensory experiences as a way to look at people's behaviour in the past. So I kind of fell into that world, partly because it sounded like such a weird and wacky theory, and I was like, I wonder if there's any way to actually test these things out. And there isn't really, <laughs> to be honest with you, because we're still building the sound technology to enable us to do that. But through archaeoacoustics, I realised it opened up this huge wide door to look at sensory behaviour in the past, like the evolution of language and of sound and of music itself is part of that field. And also it's now like even broadened even more. So it involves looking at the behaviour of animal sounds and their communication systems and how that relates to us and actually how complex their communication and sound signalling systems are. So I'm very fortunate that it even exists and people don't think I'm so crazy when I want to look at like chimpanzee drumming or whale song and things like that.
for the interior installation of Terra, the part of the exhibition that's inside Westspace Gallery. When you first enter Westspace, which is normally quite an open gallery space for anyone who's already been there with big windows, but we've chosen to kind of blockade that and disrupt that space by including this rather enormous, really cool velvet black curtain. So when you first enter Westspace, you kind of hear the sound work first. And you can hear that it's kind of hidden from you, but also invites you into the space. So when you walk through the curtain, then you get to experience the entire installation, which are these three really cool islands constructed entirely of soil uh, and also some natural fibers beneath that hold the structure up together, which is concealed. But it appears to be three mounds of soil, which Joel designed. And within these three mounds of soil, which are about 1.8 meters in diameter, are a collection of local native plants which the Victorian Indigenous Nurseries Co-op actually helped us source. And all these plants are actually local, specifically to the area of Collingwood Yard. So we really wanted the use of soil and our choice of biological components and elements in the piece to kind of be site-specific. From there, you get the full-on impact of the sound work that I composed. It's actually only two-channel, but because of the way that we linked it up across the four speakers in the space, it kind of feels like you're lying beneath the earth and kind of listening to the sounds from underneath the earth and connecting to natural field recordings that I had taken from the area as well as kind of the sounds of water and hearts beating and things like that. The third component are there are these three projection mapped videos that link up to each of the three mounds that are in the space. So I worked on these video works and they're similar to the field recordings that are involved in the sonic component. They're all kind of local field recordings from the area that we collected over the last three years. And Joel did the text animation and I did all the other visual components. So it was like actually really cool to see how these digital artificial expressions of art through projection and through sound could link to these more natural biological components that make up this immersive semi-subterranean setting for the installation. I just realized I made the installation sound like a really <laughs> like multi-dimensional, which in many ways it is. When it came to constructing the sense of what it would be like to unveil the earth, I'm also an archaeologist. <laughs> so I suppose part of how the work is constructed came from that experience of exhuming objects, normally objects from the past by kind of prying underneath the earth and digging it up. But for me, because I'm mainly a composer as well, weirdly, it's always sound that comes to me first. So the first thing I knew that would be part of the work would be the sonic components. And I always know, even if it's not necessarily someone's intention, if there is a sonic component, it will almost always be the first encounter you have of a place because it's something that bleeds past walls and through cracks. So even had we not had the curtain, which blocks off the current living installation, you would still hear the sound first from outside the West Space Gallery. So I was already aware that the sound would be kind of the first thing that brings you into the space, or at least potentially has the chance to grip your attention. And then through the research that um, Joel brought to the table as an architect, as well as my kind of more academic Western history knowledge that came through being trained as an archaeologist, it was the research itself that kind of pushed forth, how are we going to make this thing feel? The sound exists, yes, but how are we going to make it feel when you're actually sitting in the space? Do we want people to feel like they're in a garden, which is partly why when you read about the work online, it talks about gardening immediately. But then we were like, what does it actually mean to garden? Who are we gardening for? Where's the history of gardening? And how does it relate to this space that is Collingwood Yards? So the research itself then informed how we were going to lay out the visual 
aspects of the piece and how the projections, which are totally digital and kind of loopy when you're in the space, play with your sense of being immersed inside this kind of artificial but also local garden. Gardening is like something that many of us engage with, even, you know, unintentionally, like sometimes I'll go weed things because I just dislike the way that it looks, <laughs> which in many ways links to what we were questioning or thinking about how we could reframe what it means to garden. So I grew up in Sydney on Gadigal land, and I imagine that many people also grew up in a world where gardening was something that involved like a lot of care with water management and knowing how fertilizers work and mowing the lawn and watching Better Homes and Garden on TV to get like more advice about how to garden well and how to make things, you know, well landscaped. And then the more and more I started to study like the earth of Australia and biology and things like that and trying to pay more attention to the kind of knowledge that is becoming more and more explicit now in our media and also in the art world, I realized that we were being taught to garden in a way that wasn't entirely resonant or parallel with the actual climate and soil conditions and our already very vibrant ecosystem in Australia. So we wanted to unpack why we garden in the way that actually wastes a lot of fertilization and a lot of water and kind of reimagine what it means to actually look closely and intimately and bring people into a space where maybe it would spark their sense of discovery. But weirdly, a sense of discovery for plants and ecosystems that were already in their backyards probably or already in the area. So we have 10 species that are available for you to look at and even touch and engage with them and realize that, you know what, these things are really beautiful and fragile and delicate with as much vibrancy and diversity as the plants that we're used to seeing in our gardens, which are not even native at all, like things like daisies and things like roses, but we actually have native and indigenous versions of these plants. So for Joel and I, we wanted to kind of re-engage with the already existent indigenous knowledge that was there in the area. Many thanks to Vink, which is the nursery that sourced us all these plants. Back in 2021, uh, Joel requested the information about the building site through the building manager at the time, Eddie. And so we got access to all these records and building material records. And initially, that was our first site. We wanted to know what Collingwood Yards had been built out, where the bricks had come from, where the mortar came from, where the soil, etc., had come from. And slowly we realized a lot of the soil was local anyways. And because that was our main meter, we realized, okay, that's good. We can tap into that already resonant feature of this contemporary structure. 
And through the soil, I started researching plants in the area. And again, because of Collingwood Yards, for anyone who hasn't been there, it's such a vibrant community for collaboration. The building manager on site, Richard, actually pointed me towards Vink, who had been a nurseries that Collingwood Yards has been in collaboration with since its beginning. I ended up going to visit the site, uh, having a look at what they had on hand, which was absolutely incredible. And I kind of felt really embarrassed that I didn't know almost all the species that were available there. And it's open to the public too, should anyone wish for any native uh, plants in their garden. And Mark Hirsch, who runs Vink, started a conversation with me and we started a dialogue over the last couple of months in the lead up to the exhibition itself to see what would be available in time, what plants would be able to withstand being exhibited in an interior space, because that was one of our biggest challenges, managing light management for the projections, but also plant life and what things would actually work long-term because the plants that I chose to buy in the end, I also chose to give them to Collingwood Yards long-term to reintegrate them back into the courtyard so they will have a life beyond this six-week exhibition. It's um, always a bit of a challenge trying to figure out how to balance like live biological material with tech. This did bring it to the fore, kind of balancing light, because you need light for plants to live but also for projections to be vibrant, you also need no light. So the hardest thing uh, in terms of balancing it, and we'd like tried for months to try different filtration systems to see if we could like halve the amount of light that could go in, which would be just enough for the projections, which happened to be incredibly powerful. And it was very funny, not so much all the different plans for filtering the light and balancing it, but <laughs> when we were talking to different people who were involved with different components of the work, we got completely different answers. So when I spoke with Mark from Vink, he would go, no, 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 you have to put the plants first, which of course he would because the plants do need to live. They're living beings that are under our care temporarily. And then when we were talking to the projection team, they're like, no, don't worry about it. Just, just cut out all the line, make sure the projections are perfect. So the management aspect actually had less to do with the physical management of the space and more to do with managing the amount of people who collaborated to make this possible, to make them feel at ease that the component that they were involved with would be valued to its fullest extent. So the way around it is that basically when the exhibition isn't open to the public, when it's closed, I wrote this annoyingly detailed sheet for the invigilators who have to look after the plants, that everything looks as natural as possible so all the windows are slightly open to filter the soil in the air so we don't have any like build of insects or fungal things in the gallery all the light is as wide as possible and the curtains open so you would never know that it was this weirdly incredibly dark <laughs> environment if you're in the gallery on no not opening hours It was an interesting kind of balancing act because Joel being an architect thinks about building, which is something that comes from the ground up. And me as an archaeologist thinks about kind of like digging, <laughs> which is the opposite. We're going from the ground in. Uh, so it was 
funny balancing the two of them, but what I was really grateful for was he had a much stronger grasp of materiality and how to kind of mould materials and explore them in different ways, whereas an archaeologist's approach to material object is about how we construct narrative and, and like an entire mythology sometimes, but how we construct narratives out of engaging with a symbol or an object or an artefact. And it's less about making space for life when you're an archaeologist than it is about like making space for the imagination because sometimes we make things up (laughs) and sometimes the things that we kind of imagine or make up get published. (laughs) So it was kind of an act of disrupting that and that was made possible through Joel's kind of expertise in materiality and how we literally build something out of that, something physical, a physical structure or a space. Quite another component that we had to bring to the table was how we were going to approach the more conceptual and kind of even social cultural commentary that we were making through the work. Essentially, even though it's about storytelling and thinking about history in different ways and, you know, more obviously we're looking at gardening and how we handle our ecosystem locally and natively, it was about bringing to the table Joel's Indigenous knowledge and much stronger awareness that all too often we kind of disregard that knowledge and that we disregard Indigenous knowledge as being what it is, which is full of history, its culture and its science. Bringing that resonance to the fore was very important. The diasporic knowledge, that was kind of less important in this um, particular instance because we were working with Indigenous and Native plants local to that area. However, it did help me as an artist kind of frame how I viewed my own set of knowledge from Vietnamese heritage and Vietnamese history and how that also affected, well, my tendency from growing up to kind of also disregard that knowledge as being useful in any way has affected different practices in my own family house and how we also garden and how we garden in a way which is also disruptive to our local and native environment. So it was a very eye-opening experience getting to work with Joel and reconsidering how we treat the earth and how we listen to it. So I would say the most important thing I took away, it sounds a little bit cliche, but just to to listen more intentively and to listen more deeply because I sometimes fall in the trap of kind of missing the point of things or getting lost in this kind of wider picture and that we don't see the connections that are kind of right in front of us. For example, it seems so obvious that we should probably propagate our own plants and our own flora and our own fauna and that we should probably realise that before um, settlers arrived here, I mean, this environment had been flourishing for thousands and thousands of years, if not millions of years, and it has adapted and evolved in its own way to this state. And for us to kind of try and manufacture this bizarre level of water management that has worked in other places in the world like Europe, but trying to kind of impose that on an environment which is actually self-functioning seems bizarre. (laughs) So it's kind of embarrassing as well to me that it took me this long to realise a very, very obvious fact. So I would take away the most is to listen most deeply to the environment around us. Colonialism, or I I suppose also its counterpart, decolonialism, is fast becoming a big topic in archaeology. It's been a little bit behind uh, than some other disciplines, which seems odd because it's all about human behaviour. But as a whole, when we're digging in general and finding objects, whether it's through the archaeoacoustic method of kind of trying to recreate sounds or formulate new sounds and, and then analyse them, the biggest challenge in archaeology is that 
it's kind of twofold. So most of archaeology came out of like the 19th century, early 20th century. And a lot of those documents, which are like the foreground or the building or the establishment of archaeology, came from a lot of people who weren't trained in archaeology because it wasn't really a discipline back then. But more so they were themselves colonialists, kind of traveling to other parts of the world, collecting (laughs) things or, you know, taking things when they could as part of their collection and displaying them and bringing them home. But there was a kind of disconnection and it kind of maybe speaks back to the exhibition in that there was a dismissal or disregard of the local knowledge or any kind of local Indigenous knowledge. So a lot of the objects that start this establishment of archaeology have been falsely catalogued or these whole like mythologies about cultures are already incorrect. And archaeology, even now, a century later, we're kind of trying to edit those narratives because we have a tendency, like all academics, to reference kind of backwards. So it doesn't matter how far you go back in citations, you probably end up milling around these same cycles of incorrect and false assumptions about other people's cultures. So that's the first thing we need to disrupt. And the other thing is it's really hard to kind of undo some natural thought about an object. For example, in art history or in archaeology, if there's an object we don't really understand as an archaeologist or a sound that we don't totally understand its function for, we often tend to call it ceremonial or ritual. And that's partly because we don't understand the context it's come from because it's been lost or the group of archaeologists who are in charge of interpreting its meaning have all come from the same school of thought or from the same background or have been trained all the same way. So we don't have a wide diversity of people at the table making these decisions about other cultures and other objects and other sounds to begin with. So in a way that does tie in with colonialism, which is very much the bedrock for the discipline of archaeology to begin with, but also decolonizing archaeology, having conversations with archaeologists who are trained from all over the world, not just from a handful of institutions or a handful of very old colonial institutions like the British Museum or the British School of Athens and things like that. And so coming out of this like exploration of sounds and history, I'm really excited because liquid architecture uh, and debris uh, were both very kind and offered me the chance to co-create the upcoming Monopoly, which happens on the 13th of October. And it's going to be like this really cool, spectacular mosaic of all these incredible musicians, poets and, and sound workers and sound painters, mainly based from Nam. So on the day, we have Norm Jarawa Stanley, who's this amazing improviser and storyteller, and his main instrument is a didgeridoo. And he's actually been working and teaching it for at least the last 30 years. So I'm really excited to see what he's going to present, and I believe it's going to be this fusion of improvisation, participation from the audience, and also some storytelling. And then we're followed by uh, Hamish Upton, who is an experimental percussionist based in Melbourne. Uh, And he'll be performing a new set, actually. So I actually am really surprised and excited to hear what it's about because I don't actually know what it's about. So it's going to be very exciting. And then following them is Genevieve Fry and Manisha Anjali, 
who together are performing a new collaboration called Welk. And it's going to combine experimental harp and electronics as well as live spoken word. And then we have Daniel Ping, who is normally a Sydney-based cellist, but is going to be coming down to Melbourne for the performance to perform an insane cello solo (laughs) work by Melbourne-based composer Liza Lim, as well as a work in which he's, I believe, singing and playing cello at the same time by a contemporary composer, Domenga. And then we have Zana Ben, who is a Melbourne-based feminist writer and researcher at the University of Melbourne, and she'll be premiering for the first time her acoustic set of her upcoming EP. So it's like such a cool range of artists. The interesting thing that Terra allowed us to do was kind of play with being inside and outside at the same time. So the first half of the Monopoly, which begins at 7pm, is going to be happening outside in the courtyard, and there'll be some of the projections that are used in the work reprojected on the wall in the courtyard, so kind of inviting people in. And then the second half, we're going to move up the stairs into West Face Gallery, and then the second half will happen in that space, which is actually, for acoustics, really nice. On October 13, Monopoly will act as an extension of Victoria Pham and Joel Spring's exhibition, Terra, Memory and Soil, through an evening of lively music, performance, poetry, projection, sonics, affects and hospitality, as guest curated by Victoria Pham. Monopoly is an offering from Liquid Architecture, staging sonic, filmic, poetic and performative works in and around Collingwood Yards, on the first Thursday of each month. You can find more details at the link in our show notes. This podcast was produced by Mara Schretfeger for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Gadigal of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognise that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organisation for artists working with sound and listening. You can support our podcast and online journal Disclaimer through a Patreon subscription for as little as $5 a month. Find the link in our show notes.